Hey, space fans, NASA's Artemis 1 mission is about to launch the Orion spaceship to the moon. Over the next few weeks, we will be doing special coverage of the launch and Orion's mission. The best part is, we are taking you with us. Episodes will also be made available on Lockheed Martin's YouTube channel. Welcome to Lockheed Martin Spacemakers, the podcast that takes you out of this world for an inside look at some of our most challenging and innovative missions. My name is Ben, and I'll be your host. In Season 2, we explore Lockheed Martin's bold new vision of a future we call Space 2050. We partnered with our Advanced Technology Center to bring you an inside look at the innovations and technologies we are developing to make that future a reality. Because getting there is just the beginning. From smart cities to new ways to address food scarcity, how will human colonies in space transform life back on Earth? In this episode of Spacemakers, my colleague Natalia Oleksik takes a closer look at what the future on Earth may look like with a little help from space. All right, so Jamie, a couple things. Welcome to Spacemakers. So excited to have you here today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here in studio with you today. And can you just tell us a little bit about your name and your title, a little bit about what you do right now? Sure, absolutely. I'm Jamie Landers. I'm the Director of Advanced Programs New Business at Lockheed Martin Space. My team's really fun. We're the entrepreneurial proactive and productive disruptors inside Lockheed Martin. So that means we look at curiosity, creativity, and entrepreneurial opportunities to identify technologies that we want to accelerate and advance to make the future a reality today. Well, that's why we have you here. We want to hear all about that. Uh, you took a little bit of a winding road in your career to get to where you are right now. Can you tell us a little bit about your early career and what brought you to space yeah, absolutely. I was one of those precocious little children that knew she wanted to be an astronaut when I was five years old. I actually pretty much told my parents I was going to go to space camp, and I worked to get scholarships, and I went to NASA Space Academy Level 1, Level 2, and Aviation Challenge. That really shaped who I was as a young adult. I went off to get a degree in aerospace engineering from Penn State and had the great opportunity to work at a couple different space companies on lots of advanced technology type projects and programs. And I just really loved the opportunity to think about how space was really advancing humanity in all different ways, from protection to connection to developing technologies that we use here on Earth. And with that, I actually got really involved with the science of food. And I started going to pastry school at night while I was working in aerospace. And I just fell in love with developing new pastries and the science of how butter and fat and sugar and flour and protein all work together in order to make new confections. And I actually left aerospace for four years and owned and operated a food truck in Philadelphia called Luscious Bakery. And it was such a great opportunity to take science and entrepreneurship together and identify new market spaces. And I bring that experience with me to my job and my position now. And we're going to get to the food theme a little bit further down the road today because that actually does inform some of your work right now, some of the thoughts and, and work that you do to the future of space. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very passionate about sustainable agriculture, about developing new types of products and proteins, and how that's going to help us travel further into space and then develop a sustainable humanity back here. And that is why today we are talking about space on Main Street. We are talking about 
everything that you said, everything we're doing up in space will resonate here at home in ways that we can't even imagine right now, but we'd like to explore that. So let's start with the idea of a new architecture in space. What does that look like? What does it look like? We're breaking the tyranny of launch. We're working to do that one launch at a time. We're going to build colonies up there. What do those look like to you and and how do those colonies and the technologies that support them help build a better Earth? Yeah, I love thinking about civilizations off Earth and how they're connected to our communities back here. We're going to build a moon base. We're going to go to the moon and we're going to stay. We're going to live and work harmoniously off Earth as a global society. That's what's really thrilling to me. It's going to take all of us. It's not just going to be the United States or the European Union or the UK or Australia that are going to be the spacefaring nations. It's going to be a diverse and varied community of scientists, of communicators, of artists, really developing the future of a sustainable economy in a very harsh environment. And if you think about that harsh environment experience helps us prepare for things like droughts, flooding, volcanoes, earthquakes, migration of people around the globe back here. And I really see us having not just the moon base, but we'll have people living and working at far outposts, whether they're looking at the clouds of Venus or they're settling the new surface of a Martian environment and really figuring out how we connect all those individual civilizations so that they're not isolated. I very much care about how space connects us as a humanity. And you say connect us not just within the space economy, but connect that back to Earth. Correct. Yeah. Imagine, you know, you're on a two-year mission to the Martian surface and you miss the smell of your mom making your favorite dish. What if not only you could video chat with her, but you could feel a hug from her? What if you could smell what she was cooking in that day? And in that moment, you don't feel as isolated. And that's all space technology that can connect us. So it's not just living in a virtual environment, but it's being able to experience each other on a different level. What if you needed surgery and you were hiking in Machu Picchu and you needed that connection and that low latency data for a surgeon based in the UK to tell your surgeon what was the right procedure to do? So it's really about coming up together and creating that new human experience. And space is that thing that connects us. It is that layer, that architecture that is going to create a new experience for everybody. You're talking about a vast potential above us, but that is a hostile environment. How do we overcome that environment to get to that potential and to leverage it to make life better here on Earth? I like to equate space to us exploring the oceans. And that is because when I was very young, my dad took me to see Jacques Cousteau's son give a talk about exploring the depths of the sea. Um, And it is a super harsh environment. It is dark. It is cold. It is unknown. We have discovered creatures we never knew were there. Space is like that too, right? So we need new modes to do new materials to do radiation shielding. If we want to go to Venus, we want to go to Mars, we want to go beyond Mars, we're going to have to protect humans from the radiation environment that's out there. So material science, additive manufacturing, new ways to develop technologies that are going to help us not only in outer space in that harsh environment, but help us build sustainable housing back on Earth. 
Imagine if you could build sustainable housing in a new mega urban area that was built in less time, with less waste, with lower cost, and could house humans in a communal environment where it's not you're just going to your apartment or your condo, but you're actually living and working in the same space with everybody for sustainability, vertical gardens, things like that. I just see that for the future because we're going to do it in outer space and we're definitely going to do it back here. Walk us through a little bit about that. Vertical gardens, new materials. How is that even, how do we even begin to build that up in space? Yeah, that's all about curiosity for me, right? So I'm a huge coffee lover. And so one of the things I think about is as I wake up on the lunar surface to go to work, the first thing that's going to be on my mind is how do I make coffee? (laughs) (laughs) Some things never change, I know, exactly. And we use that as a jumping off point to figure out what technologies we need to develop today in order to make that a reality. Mm -hmm. And so things like Extracting oils in zero gravity is something we need to discover Mm -hmm. because when you're doing that espresso pull, it's using the oils from the beans that have been roasted in order to make that nice crema on top. So we need to figure that out. And so we go off and we look at what are the technologies that we have today that are directly applicable? What are the things that we need to discover? What are the experiments that we need to do? So when I wake up in the moon in 15 years, I can have a cup of espresso. 15 years. 15 years. That's a pretty short timeline. Yes, I know. That's so exciting, right? So when you, when you think about the first woman and the next man are going to land on the surface of the moon, you know, in 2024 timeline, mm-hmm. I mean, that's thrilling to me. I grew up in the shuttle era watching people go to space all the time and do spacewalks, but I didn't get to see people walk on the surface of the moon. And I can't wait till that's a reality today. And I think we're really going to accelerate the infrastructure that we need to build on the lunar surface to make a civilization a reality. So we'll look at things at wireless power beaming if you want a lunar outpost, right? Can you explain a little bit about wireless power beaming? Yeah, this concept's actually been around for quite some time. I I remember reading a magazine like Modern Mechanics or something back in the early 2000s talking about how when you walk into your home, everything's going to be powered wirelessly. We're still studying that technology today. And so harvesting the power of the sun and transitioning that into something that we can beam across very large surfaces in order to power uh, lunar mobile vehicles, in order to do personal mobility, in order to power your home on the lunar surface. We are here at Lockheed Martin partnering with GM Mm -hmm. on the newest lunar vehicle for the moon. Do you see that technology informing how we build mobility here on Earth? Absolutely. I'm an early adopter. I have an electric vehicle. Because I believe we need to look at new energy sources in order to create a sustainable Earth environment. I think whatever we discover working with GM closely is going to help inform the vehicles of the future. And I think personal mobility on Earth isn't just looking at cars and vehicles, mass transportation, right? Being able to move seamlessly from going to your home to work with one mode of transportation or maybe multiple I think it's really exciting because that environment on the lunar surface with all the regolith and the rocks and the dust is actually directly applicable to things that our agriculture and our farmers deal with today. 
So when you're sowing soybeans, it creates this ginormous dust cloud, and it's hard for your tractor to identify, is it in the right row, or is it actually sowing enough soybeans, because it creates this clog on the sensors. We're going to deal with that on the lunar surface, too. We're going to deal with giant dust clouds. So being able to identify those dust clouds, characterize them, be able to mitigate them, that's directly applicable to what we do in agriculture today. Jamie, everything you're talking about requires data. We build an infrastructure on the moon. We roam around the moon on a new lunar rover. It's data hand over fist. How do we harness that data? How do we apply it back to Earth? Yeah, if you think about us as a species, we've been collecting data since the birth of our humanity. I think about the early explorers going out and tracking ocean tides. I think about people learning how to develop the first farms and stuff like that. And that's all data. And they shared that data through stories, right? Narratives. Narratives and passing that down generation to generation. And when you told the next tribe over what worked well for you and what didn't, they aggregated that data with their own inputs and their own experience and created a new set of data and then shared that out. And it got better, but it was slow. Now, with machine learning, Mm -hmm. with AI, with things like supercomputing in space, I think we're going to see a great explosion, not just of the amount of data that we have, but how actionable that data becomes. And that's the key, right? Actionable. That's right. I want us to stop being reactionary to the things that we can't control and instead create an action plan. So, you know, taking some of the great weather data that comes off of GOES and being able to aggregate that with ocean temperature, with melting polar ice caps, with migrations of animals, and being able to predict where you're going to either have a great growing season or you're going to have challenges, be able to predict when our population is going to have to migrate from an area in Africa that is having challenges with drought and where can they settle. Even being able to protect our city infrastructure. So, you know, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I always think about, wow, it was so great to grow up very close to the ocean. But I remember like standing there in downtown Boston and standing at the edge of the ocean and think about what happens when the ocean rises? How do we protect our infrastructure that we already have in place? Or how do we adapt? Humans are so great at adapting. And I think that data is going to help us adapt quicker and smarter. So there's, I think, five or six megacities globally right now. And that's over a threshold of a certain population. I think the adaptability is going to be really important when we're developing the new megacities of the future. I think about things like autonomous emergency vehicles, being able to respond when there is an accident. Imagine if you were having a stroke and you didn't know it, but your smartwatch could notify an emergency vehicle and tell them where you are based on your location, very accurate in an urban area, and be able to call for help for you. And not just in a mega city, but imagine if that's happening in a rural area. GPS and augmentation services have have been able to identify lost hikers or hikers that are in distress. Imagine if we could use that information much more precise to be able to predict how to fight forest fires. So knowing what you know about the potential of space, because you work with it every day, understanding that this is probably going to be one of humanity's greatest challenges, how do we become an off-Earth species and keep our greatest qualities of cooperation and, and are open to new things? Can we cooperate up there and bring all that data back to Earth and make life better for everybody? Yeah, I think we're starting to see that with the Artemis Accords. 
everybody realizes that space needs to be sovereign to advance humanity and that Earth is a precious resource and that we either need to figure out how to sustain our environment and and not come off Earth or what I like is the idea that we live and work together on and off Earth seamlessly. And I think what we'll start to see is the lines blur there. I think everybody understands that there is much to be gained from space, and we can only do that. It is so expensive still. It is so difficult still. It is so out there that I think everybody realizes that we need each other. We need the dreamers, the philosophers, the artists, and the technologists to make that a reality. You know, I just came from an international conference last week where we were talking about building large pieces of infrastructure on orbit without help from Earth, right? And robotically and autonomously, and how one person is working on actually manufacturing the pieces of material, and one person is working on the assembly of those materials, and another person is working on how we take that and turn that into a habitat. And out of all those three people, they were from three different nations. They had three different types of economies, and they are all concerned with how we each focus on individual pieces in order to make greater good. Now, one of the parts of the community that we haven't really explored yet is robotics. Mm -hmm. How smart are they going to get and how integrated into our society? They're going to get as smart as humans are, I think, in the sense that we're the ones who program the robotics, right? And so we're the ones who help them understand when there's a problem. We're the ones who help them understand what are the tasks that they need to achieve. So I think about autonomous swarms on the lunar surface building new habitats, right? Right. So autonomous construction vehicles, autonomous everything from dozers to the ones that are building, the ones that are doing 3D additive manufacturing on the moon, living and working autonomously by themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be on the construction site. I don't need to be there, but I can be monitoring it from afar. And when there is an anomaly the robot being able to stop and and go back and talk to you um, and tell you what's happening and what they're seeing and wait for that human interaction and that human intervention. I think the robots are going to help us explore deeper into space and build those civilizations quicker. I don't think they're ever going to replace humans. What does that mean for someone who's 18 right now? Could they become one of those people that goes up to space and starts managing swarms of robots? Absolutely. I think the robots are going to help inform us. They're going to help us work and operate in harsh environments, but they're never going to replace the curiosity, the intelligence, and the forward thinking of a human. Everything you talk about, it means humans need to get up there quickly, and there's an economic stranglehold on that right now. What do you see changing that? What really excites me now is all the entrepreneurship around space. As an entrepreneur at heart, seeing all these wonderful space startups being able to raise investment funds We've seen historic levels of space companies go public in the last two or three years. 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, when I entered the workforce, there were not space companies going public. So this is a whole new economy now. As a private investor, you can put your money behind a new rocket company. You can put your money behind somebody who's working to build robots in space. You can put your money behind somebody who's looking to explore Venus. I think that's very, very exciting. And I think that's breaking some of the stranglehold on the government and Department of Defense being the ones that fund space exploration. And now you're seeing private citizens and venture capitalists who are very interested in creating those new economies in space. 
Do you see a tipping point where it becomes as common to go to space as it is to go to the beach? I wish I went to the beach more. So (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. You know, I, like I said, I was that precocious five-year-old that just wanted to be an astronaut more than anything in my life. I think in my lifetime, that will be an opportunity. I don't know if I'll get to go to space as often as I go to the beach, but I hope so. So it's, it's a potential. It's a potential for sure. I think in the next 40 years, you're really going to see that breakthrough. You're going to see lots of citizens traveling to outer space for vacation, for artistic opportunities. Jamie, your career has been long in space, and you've done a lot of looking at the future. We do that a lot here at Lockheed, all of the teams. Why do we do that? Yeah, we have a great heritage and legacy of understanding mission really getting down to how do we provide value to our customers and to humanity in general. And I think in order to do that, you need to look forward as far as possible. So we identify what we want the future to look like, and we use that as a jumping off point to walk back and say, what are the roadblocks to that? What are the technologies we need to develop today in order to make that a reality? And then we can invest our own dollars into that research and development for technology. We're not waiting for a government or a customer to say, why don't we give you the money to go fund this and do this? We want to be the thought leaders. We want to paint a strategic roadmap for that connected compassionate, sustainable humanity of the future. Are there a couple of programs you could touch on in particular that you think are helping that we're developing here at Lockheed that drive to that future? Yeah, I think the work that we're doing on smart cities is really important. Making sure that individual communities are getting the value that they need from our systems. So whether that's protecting our infrastructure. For example, I read something astounding about the bridges in the United States and how it's a resource that we use every day. Think about all the bridges you drive across and how we do not have a good way to track and monitor, amend, or repair those bridges. So what if we could combine space data with sensor data that we have here terrestrially and be able to identify when we need to repair or inspect those bridges further? You're talking about remote sensing, right? Remote sensing, yeah. And it's it's communication, it's remote sensing, and it's data aggregation. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a couple different technologies working in concert. And as I drive to work, I think about all the time that you spend sitting at a red light with nobody in sight, not another car, not a pedestrian, <laughs> right? What if we could make your life more efficient, route your commute, signal to the red lights, identify when there is heavier traffic, and do that and provide that in a heads-up display? I still get astounded that my phone knows that I leave work about 5.30 every day, and they know when I'm on my way to work, usually on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I stop at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Because it routes me there. I don't ask it to. Right. It yes. routes me there. Now, what if it could route me there and change the lights when there's nobody in sight? I think they'd hold a parade in your honor if you could make that technology happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great example and really hits home. Another thing that really hits home, you mentioned it earlier, is food. We know that they've been growing seeds on the International Space Station. What does food look like in the future with all that we're working on now to figure out how to grow it up in space? What does that look like for us? 
Yeah, this is such an exciting topic for me, not just because of my culinary explorations, but when I was in fourth grade, I participated in the NASA SEEDS program. So those were seeds that were flown on the International Space Station and then delivered to school-aged children all around the country. And then they grew a control group versus the seeds that were flown in space. And that was kind of my entry into how space and food are really connected and how providing a sustainable economy is around the resources that we can give them so air, food, water, the things that we need to sustain life. And I think about the challenges that agriculture has today, right? The workforce shortages that Mm -hmm. we have dealing with droughts or floods or tornadoes or things like that. Being able to identify how to have farms in urban areas so that you're not trucking tomatoes all the way across the country to feed people in New York City. You know, when there's a shortage of food op- deserts, right? Yeah, food mm. deserts. And yeah. usually when we talk about food deserts, we talk about food deserts in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Is that where high rise farms come in? Yeah, I think high-rise farms, I think new ways of farming, you know, hydroponics has been around for several years. Being able to identify drought-tolerant crops or being able to be clever about where and when we harvest where and when we plant, Mm -hmm. and being able to identify and predict, again, there's that data, predict when we're going to need a booster crop or when we're going to need to cut back production on our dairy farms because we have a surplus, and being able to incentivize our farmers to do that, I think is going to be really important. And as we push off earth, it's a harsh environment. So figuring out how to grow high-density food, lots of food in a small area with limited resources, and then identifying new materials that become consumables, so Mm. new proteins. That's a game changer. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, there's been some exciting technology out there about 3D printing protein, and I think that is so cool. I would love to try one of those 3D printed steaks, but... Do they exist yet, or are they about to exist? They exist today. So CES last year, so I I believe it was 2021, that company was there and they actually 3D printed protein that is supposed to resemble a ribeye steak. It's supposed to look and smell and have the same texture and taste like a ribeye steak. And this would be the kind of food that astronauts take with them. Yeah. Imagine taking a 3D printer that is able to 3D print synthetic proteins. And that could help solve food scarcity on Earth. Yeah, I think we need to look at new alternatives for our food as we move into the future. Everything you have touched on, 3D stakes to remote sensing and how humans can respond to that, become more agile, more mobile, and more efficient in how they live their lives with the the needs that they have. What does that look like a day in the life? Now, we know that you've spent some of your career, you talked about having a team where you, you imagined a baseball game on the lunar surface. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, we had the great opportunity to develop what we called a a thought leadership white paper about what a day on the lunar surface looked like and all the technologies you you need to make that a reality. And it's, it's really fun and it makes me smile and laugh because it starts with me waking up on the lunar surface in my habitat my sustainable habitat, creating that espresso that I talked about, making breakfast of synthetic protein and harvesting fresh vegetables from my vertical garden, 
getting ready for work, and that looks like dressing in a spacesuit. I was going to say spacesuit comes in here somewhere, right? Yeah, yes. dressing in a spacesuit, but maybe not the traditional like 1980s shuttle spacesuits, and maybe even something a little more modern than what we've seen SpaceX put out in Blue Origin, but being able to have a personal environment where you can deal with the harsh radiation of space and the harsh environment, and then leaving my habitat and getting on high-speed transportation to go to the lunar outpost. So I'm a scientist in this scenario, and I get on my tram with everybody else, and it's a magnetic tram, and it's high-speed, and it takes me from my lunar outpost to the far side of the moon where I'm doing scientific research, and that commute only takes a few minutes. We're in a lunar rover. I wouldn't even have enough battery to get there and, and sunlight to get there. And then my day in science is a lot about data and collection and aggregation and construction and being able to relay that information, being able to aggregate that data and create actionable steps from it. You know, having lunch with my coworkers, right? That sense of community. And during lunch, we talk about what it would be like to play baseball on the moon. Are the rules the same? How do we all get there? What is the money we use to actually pay for the ticket? Do you need a bat? There's no gravity. Do you need a bat? It, it really, space, zero gravity really becomes that great athletic leveler, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, can a common citizen who is not does not have that athletic prowess play on a professional baseball team? I, I think that would be so cool. And then kind of finishing up your day and getting back on that mass high-speed transportation and going to a community and experiencing that together, whether that is an art show on the lunar surface. That's what I just love is that the creativity is unbounded. And when you think about living and working on the moon or on an outpost or looking at the clouds of Venus, like what is it going to inspire us to do next? I have a question about Mars. Isn't Mars even more of an environment that can sustain these activities? I think we're finding that through discovery. So it's been really interesting to have the Mars rover out there and insight, collecting all that data and, and finding out how habitable Mars really is. I think right now the challenge is it takes a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. Being able to protect those astronauts from the radiation and the time that it takes to get there and also being able to create new propulsion technology that can get us there much quicker. You know, we're investigating nuclear thermal propulsion and being able to use that nuclear thermal reactor in a safe way off Earth in order to move us around from the moon to Mars very quickly. All of this takes human ingenuity beyond what we've ever employed before. When you wake up every day with the role that you have in this, what excites you the most about the future? My job is so fun. I know everyone at Lockheed thinks they have the most fun job, but my job, they call me the crazy idea lady or the what if lady. My job really is to live and think in creative play. And we bound that in science, right? So we connect creativity, curiosity with entrepreneurship and technology. And that is just the center of the Venn diagram that I love to live in. And I am just so excited about seeing our future generations and what they're going to come up with and how they're seamlessly going to connect humanity and work together and how empathetic and compassionate we're going to become as a society in order for the betterment of the good and for sustaining us for generations and generations to come. 
Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. I've been speaking with Jamie Landers about the future of space at Lockheed Martin. Thank you. From taking a high-speed lunar train to your worksite on the moon to playing a new form of baseball, the future of space will undoubtedly shape our future here on Earth. We'll be able to 3D print foods and discover new ways to be more efficient with our food production. Imagine a world with remote sensors empowering AI to help improve self-driving vehicles and hopefully solve traffic congestion. That leads us to smart cities. It's estimated more than 3 billion people live in a smart city right now, and it's projected that by 2030, that number will rise to more than 5 billion. So how will the future of space make smart cities, well, smarter? That just happens to be the name of our next episode, Making Smart Cities Smarter. You've been listening to Jamie Landers at Lockheed Martin, and Jamie is a spacemaker. Whether you're a software engineer, systems engineer, finance, or HR professional, we need spacemakers like you to make the seemingly impossible missions a reality. Please visit this episode's show notes to learn more about what you just heard in this episode or the careers available at Lockheed Martin. If you enjoyed this show, please like and subscribe so others can find us and follow along for more out-of-this-world stories. To learn more about our missions, products, and people, follow our new Twitter handle at LMSpace and visit LockheedMartin.com backslash space. Join us on the next episode as we introduce you to more space makers. Space Makers is a production of Lockheed Martin Space. It's executive produced by Pavan Desai. Senior producer is Natalia Oleksik. Senior producer, writer, and host is Ben Dinsmore. Sound design and audio mastered by Julian Geraldo. Graphic design by Tim Rush. Marketing and recruiting by Joe Portnoy, Shannon Myers, Mallory Richardson, and Stephanie Dixon. A huge thanks to all the communication professionals at Lockheed Martin who helped make these stories possible. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. Need even more space? Subscribe to Lockheed Martin's monthly Space Scoop newsletter to get all the latest space news, fun facts, and behind-the-scenes mission updates right to your inbox. Sign up using the link in show notes, and remember to follow Lockheed Martin on social media. Hey, space fans. There's a new way to interact directly with Lockheed Martin Space and go even further behind the scenes of the technologies, missions, and people driving the future of space. We've launched a brand new Twitter handle, at LMSpace, devoted fully to giving you exclusive access to the Lockheed Martin products and missions you love. Head on over to Twitter, give us a follow, and let us know what your favorite Spacemakers episode is. We'll see you in the Twitter sphere.